We don't, we don't have the luxury of, of two-sided name tags, so we had to figure out, figure out where we're going just now. Uh, thanks to all of you for being here. Uh, I'm Jim Harper, Director of Information Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. I study privacy and technology, telecommunications, and intellectual property. But in the last couple of years, I've spent most of my time on identification policy, and in particular, the Real ID Act. Real ID is a federal law that passed three years ago, attached to a military spending bill without a hearing in either the House or the Senate. The law sought to have states issue licenses according to federal standards and place driver information into nationally accessible databases. It called for our driver's licenses and ID cards to have a machine-readable device or component that would allow scanning of Americans' basic information whenever they were asked. There has been some debate about whether Real ID creates a national ID card or a national ID system, and I've concluded that it is by applying a highly sophisticated test. If it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, you're going to have a duck. This Sunday, May 11th, the statutory deadline for state compliance with Real ID will pass without a single state coming into compliance. In fact, the Department of Homeland Security struggled to even get states to accept the free pass deadline extensions that they were handing out to states just for the asking. This is for a number of reasons. Unworkability. At the time it passed, the chairman of the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, Senator Lieberman, called Real ID unworkable. And this has proven true. The costs. The costs of Real ID range from $17 billion to $23 billion, depending on how you like to count. And these costs were not credibly reduced by the estimates that came out of the Department of Homeland Security earlier this year when it issued the final regulations. These costs, of course, are foisted onto states as unfunded surveillance mandates. Then there are the privacy and data security issues. These are formidable, and they were left unresolved by the Department of Homeland Security when it issued its final rules earlier this year. Faced with these issues and more, state leaders across the country have rejected Real ID. In the Mountain West, the Northeast, the South, and elsewhere, state leaders from both parties are leading char a charge to reject this national ID law. They passed bills and resolutions objecting to or outright barring their states from complying with Real ID. Eighteen states have now passed legislation like this. Arizona and Alaska may soon join the list. We're pleased at, here today at Cato to welcome two of the leading figures on this issue who have stepped forward to address the question, a question that should have addressed, been addressed long ago, whether the United States should have a national ID card. I would note that uh, this podium and the auditorium, the Hayek Auditorium here at Cato, uh, don't witness a lot of praise for politicians. But I have the pleasure today of welcoming and thanking two of the country's leaders on the national ID issue who are getting this right. First, I'll introduce Governor Mark Sanford, elected South Carolina's 115th governor in 2002 and re-elected in 2006. Governor Sanford has an extensive record of service to his state, but I want to highlight my own experience of the man and his work. I, I'll say I've been around Washington uh, a, a while, uh, living here. I've, I've gone both bald and gray, which uh, I, a lot of people didn't realize was possible. But I've never seen more careful and thorough consideration of an issue than Governor Sanford and his office gave to Real ID when they were looking at, the, looking at this problem. <laughs> they studied every dimension of the issues at stake. Uh, they studied the law carefully and did a lot of fact-finding. Um, I think that uh, that's uh, exemplary, an exemplary example of leadership on this, on this issue, and we need to see more of it. 
In March, Governor Sanford wrote DHS Secretary Chertoff a letter declining to ask for an extension of Real ID, and the letter was five pages long. That reflects the quality of work. Uh, indeed, I'll vouch for the quality of work in addition to the length. Well, the DHS was bluffing that it would interfere with the air travel of people from South Carolina and other states uh, if, that refused to comply with Real ID, and DHS backed down. Montana is another state that stood down the DHS, and our second speaker represents that state in the U.S. Senate. John Tester was elected to the Senate in 2006 after serving eight years in the Montana Senate where he rose to the rank of Senate President. I want to tell you a little bit about my fondness for Montana. My brother was born there in Bozeman. I, I unfortunately, or fortunately for me, was born in California. We have different, different versions of cool to us because of that. But I, I also uh, worked on a fire crew in Montana in 1988. You recall that's a big was a big uh, a year for fire, year that Yellowstone burned. Uh, I'm, I'm most proud to note that I was on the Warm Springs fire in the Helena National Forest. We put our fire out, so <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm pleased by that for my own case anyway. Uh, anyway, I want to I want to congratulate Senator Tester for recognizing the defects in the Real ID law from the beginning. He was an original. Co-sponsor of S-717, the Akaka Sununu legislation, which would repeal Real ID, Real ID and restore the identification security provisions from the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Protection Act uh, that, that uh, was really a product of the 911 Commission. The bill's been endorsed by the National Council of State Legislatures and last week by the Association of Corporate Travel Executives. These are groups who recognize the defects in Real ID directly. And their endorsements, I think, are, are tributes to the early leadership of Senator Tester on this issue. So thank you both for being here. Let's start with uh, Governor Sanford and go to Senator Tester. We are short on time, so we'll go immediately to questions after that. Um, and thank you all again for being here. Governor Sanford. Um, you mentioned five-page letter, which indeed I did send to the Homeland uh, Security uh, d uh, Director, to, to Secretary Chertoff. Um, and I don't know whether that was just testing whether or not he uh, was having a problem with insomnia and trying to get him over it, uh, or um, we were going into a lot of reasons as to why we thought it was uh, something that didn't make a lot of sense. But what I do know is that um, a lot of the conversations I've had with folks have been uh, tied to this larger theme in, of insomnia. Because a lot of folks are sort of sleeping through this debate and what Senator Tester is about and what I'm about is trying to, in any way that we can, awaken folks to uh, what I think amounts to an incredibly important debate in what comes next in the larger mix between the growth of government on one side and liberty, which is the real hallmark of the American experiment, there on the other. And um, we got a fair number of calls from folks saying, look, I really don't care about the mechanics or the details on this thing. What I care about is would it interrupt my uh, family's planned trip to Disney World this summer? And so you'd get into this conversation about, uh, I don't know. The feds might indeed hold us hostage on what comes next. But what I do know is that this theme is much more important at the end of the day than the details, the fine print on that family trip to Disney World. And so I thought it appropriate. I went to UVA for grad school. Uh, I'm a Jefferson fan. And I have just a couple of quotes here. I would rather be exposed to the inconveniences attending to too much liberty than those attending to too small, to too small a degree of it. It behooves every man who values liberty of conscience for himself to resist invasions of it in the case of others. Rightful liberty is unobstructed action according to our own will within the limits drawn around us 
by the equal rights of others. I do not add within the limit to the law because law is often but the tyrant's will and always so when it violates the rights of the individual. I could go on with a lot of other Jefferson quotes, and you could look up Burke, and you could look up Locke, and you could look up Hume. But what we all know is that liberty is that central ingredient to making a free market-based system, economy, work over the long run. It's a central ingredient to a Republican form of government. It's a central ingredient, or at least a key determinant in personal happiness. So that's why we're here. At the end of the day, this debate is not about real ID, and I do believe it is everything about, in the long run, this, this tenuous balance between government on one side and liberty on the other. But inasmuch as I was quoting uh, from the past, I got a little bit of other history here to, to, to share with you. This is a they, – uh, the guys pulled it. It's a Chicago Sun-Times editorial. Uh, it's entitled Repugnant National ID Card Looms Again. And it says here, like a bad TV show gone into reruns, the specter of a national ID card for every American is back again. Against a backdrop of anti-immigration rhetoric on the campaign trail, the Senate Judiciary Committee is considering sweeping legislation to develop a, a, a national electronic database. And then it goes on to the editorial. At the bottom of the editorial, it says... As cries for smaller, less intrusive government are rallying popular support, the idea of the federal government creating a powerful and intrusive bureaucracy is repugnant. Certain, uh, certainly efforts to control illegal immigration and employment are worthwhile, but if in that process Americans lose any of their treasured freedom, that cost is too high. Now, what's interesting is that this editorial is of March 11, 1996. Mm-hmm. <laughs> This is not a new debate. And you could have had a debate in the 80s. You could have had another debate in the 90s. And now you can have a debate in the 2000s about this concept of a national ID card. You know, history really does have a way of repeating itself, and not just in current history in terms of editorials, but over the long run. If you were to go back and and look at the debates on security versus freedom and what are we going to give up to get some more security, you could go back to the Great Wall of China. I mean, it stands as a silent monument to the fact that in asymmetrical warfare, things constantly change. And, and so you could look at the Great Wall. You could look at Hadrian's Wall cutting across the better part of Great Britain to keep those wild Scotsmen out when the Romans were there. You could look at the Maginot Line. The French said, you know, after World War I, never again, let's go ahead and create a fortification that would protect us from Germans ever coming our way again. You could come up with a lot of examples across the pages of history wherein there's at least been some degree of conversation on the tension between freedom and security and the tension of what are we willing to pay to get more in the way of security. And the ultimate test on that front is obviously the Gibbons quote wherein he looked at the fall of the Roman Empire and talked about the Athenians and how they'd given up freedom for security and then obviously in the long run lost both. I think that the real ID in many ways represents the Maginot line, if you want to call it that, of security measures in the 21st century, given the way that the world is changing, given the way that, indeed, terrorists will always be asymmetrical in their attacks. I mean, that is the nature of modern-day warfare. It will constantly change. And so when I look at real ID, I begin to look at, 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 at the things that begin to impinge upon that liberty component that I think joins us, all of us, uh, right here in this, this room this afternoon. 
first of all, whether one is, you know, from the political persuasion of left or right, the thing that we could all agree on in the American system is that our ideas ultimately are debated. And through that Socratic process, we come up with ideas that ultimately work better than if they were just dictated. But as was just pointed out a moment ago, this is a bill that fundamentally got no debate in the halls of Congress. It wasn't marked up at a hearing level in the Senate or the House side. I mean, there have been more hearings and there's been more debate in the National Congress about steroid use in baseball players than there is about this real ID uh, notion and the consequent notion of uh, obviously a de facto national ID card that comes with it. And so I, I think that this is one about a process question. If do you simply attach something as uh, you know on a bill to help tsunami victims in the southeast and military personnel in the mil- military personnel in the Middle East, is your way of getting to something that has been defeated in the 90s and in the 80s and well beyond? I'd say secondly, this is the mother of all unfunded mandates, and at some point we have got to draw a line in the sand with regard to unfunded mandates. Um, you know, the National Council of State Legislative Bodies called this the most egregious example of unfunded mandates. And you hear the 17 million, you hear the 23 million, you hear revised numbers at 9 billion. I've not seen one real world instant where something went from 23 billion in cost down to 9 billion in cost. But but let's just pretend that that existed. Even if you accept those numbers, what you're looking at is the feds paying 2% and individuals and states paying basically the other 98%. Now, if you go out to dinner with your friends and you say, tell you what, I'll pick up 2% of the tab, but I'm going to go ahead and order a night, would that work? I mean, you go, going back to Disney World, you go there with friends or kids, you say, I tell you what, I'm going to pick up 2% of the bill, but you guys pick up the other 98%, but I'm picking all the rides? Or you go out to build a, a you know, we came in this, this, this morning, you look at the number of commercial buildings coming up around Washington, can you imagine the builder saying, I tell you what, I'm going to cover 2% of the cost, but I am going to pick the architect, uh, all the plans, et cetera, et cetera. It just does not work that way in real life with the exception of Washington, D.C. life. And so I think that when you think about this notion of unfunded mandates, it's incredibly problematic. That's why Janet Napolitano, who comes from a very different political persuasion than my own, and I very much agree on how wrong this bill is. And I think that it's not just a question of continuing unfunded mandates and how they're a problem. It is a larger problem in the way that perpetuates Washington spending. If Washington can no longer afford the bill for different goods and services, the last-ditch effort in perpetuating the spending train in Washington, D.C., is in fact handing the bill to somebody else. You got David Walker, Comptroller General of the United States of America, who recently ended the fiscal wake-up tour, and what he talked about was the accumulated debt is basically $50 trillion of contingent liability that every one of us owe as Americans, and as a household, that's about $450,000 per household in America. We are getting to that tipping point, and and some of the movement in the dollar says maybe we're past that tipping point. But the only way that in the long run Washington continue the spending train is indeed with unfunded mandates. So if you care outside of the liberty component, outside of the security component, but if you just care as one who cares about the nuts and bolts of Washington spending, you ought to care about real ID. I would thirdly say – Not that you care that much, but for those of us in South Carolina, we have worked over the last couple of years to get wait times at DMV offices down to 15 minutes. Our uh, estimates based on Marsha Adams, who's head of our DMV office, is that it's going to run somewhere between an hour and two. 
Uh, you, you're talking about not just an unfunded mandate with regard to dollars. You're talking about an unfunded mandate with regard to time. Um, two hours is a lot of time. We all have but so many hours here on Earth. You can spend it with friends. You can spend it at work. You can spend it at play. Or you can spend it at DMV line. What, 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 what Real ID guarantees is that all of us, at least in our state, and I suspect this is the same in other states, will be spending more time in, uh, in uh, driver's license lines across the country. Fourthly, I would say that um, Real ID is another step against the theme of limited government. You know, the First Amendment is very clear in, in guaranteeing to Americans the right to petition or to address uh, their, their representatives. There was not a caveat that said at the bottom, only if you got a real ID card. I mean, it just guaranteed that right to petition. What's scary about this is for the first time in recorded history, um, somebody would walk up to the federal building and be turned away on a visit that they would otherwise like to have with their congressman or their senator. I was a member of the U.S. Congress. I had countless meetings with people whose background I knew nothing about, and that was a good thing. Because where they were, their background was not relevant to the issue. The issue was where did I stand on an issue that was being debated in in the halls of the U.S. House of Representatives? Uh, And was that in sync or out of sync with where they were coming from? That was it. This would fundamentally begin to change that balance of power such that when you walked into your House or Senate member's office, they're going to know more about you than perhaps you know about them. And I don't think that that's good. I, uh, I also think it's a little bit scary in the way that it's less very open to interpretation, the scope in the long run of real ID. Official purposes in the long run could mean buying a gun. It could be opening a bank account. Who knows where it ends? Fourthly, or fifthly, I'd say uh, one last show and tell, and I'll, I'll, I'll hand it off to my Senate colleague here. But um, real ID is based on the presupposition that the air is not human. And as we all know, to air is very much human. And so these are just a couple of things. I had them clipped. This is the New York Times. Passport files of the three candidates were pried into. As you know, a couple of bureaucrats get bored, think it'd be fun to open up the passport files with a couple of presidential candidates. Uh, TSA laptop stolen. This is New York Times, October 15, 2007. VA loses more veterans' data. I didn't know it was possible because I thought they lost $40 million in the first go-round. Uh, teen suspected as a Pentagon hacker under house arrest. As you remember, the teen getting into the Pentagon computers, that was uh, March 19, 1998. Uh, worker often took data home, another VA story in 2003. Uh, outsourced passport work poses risk, uh, March to, uh, Washington time, 26, 2008. Uh, again, I won't belabor the point, but what we all know is that this idea of one-stop shopping for every computer hacker around the world is probably not a really good idea from the standpoint of security. And the idea of having that same information housed separately and independently in 50 different states, we believe, would enhance security rather than detract from it. And finally, I would say this. Um, Because this bill was not debated, there are a whole host of loopholes that I think render it uh, ineffective in, in indeed, the Maginot line when it comes to security measures. Um, As you know, it does not address foreign passports. So even if all the advertised credentials of real ID worked, you're telling me a bad guy is going to go through the real ID hopes when he can go to a third world country whose name I can't spell and pick up a passport there and come to the United States under those conditions. I mean, I think every time they're going to go the third world passport route. 
The other thing is, you know, the Ninth Circuit Court recently came down with a ruling that said you don't need any personnel information to board a plane. All you need is a pat-down search. So you're telling me a bad guy is going to go through the hoops involved in real ID when, in fact, our own court system has rendered decisions otherwise. I think it just has a lot of, of very serious faults that deserve, as a consequence, a much longer debate on a debate that has been taking place for about 40 years now. I'll hand off to my Senate colleague, or I guess I'll hand back to you. I don't know how this works. But anyway, uh, the real important thing is not what I think or what the senator thinks. What's really important to the young people in this room is what do you think and to what degree are you willing to talk to friends about it? I go back to the number of people that are sleeping through this debate who aren't really focused on what is at play. I ask that you be part of the key to reminding them and part of the force to reminding them. Thanks. Appreciate it. Well, it's a pleasure to be here today. I, I want to thank Jim for, uh, for uh, the introduction. It's good to be here. It's great to, stay, to share the podium with you, Governor Sanford. Um, I was born and raised on a farm in, in north-central Montana. It's the same piece of ground that my uh, grandparents homesteaded 100 years ago, and it's the same farm that my wife and I still farm today. When you work and you live on a farm in uh, that part of the country, it builds character because of the challenges of Mother Nature, of, uh, of equipment, uh, and now energy. You have to rely on a few things to get yourself through. You rely on your neighbors and your family. You rely on values like hard work, honesty, patience, and most importantly, common sense. I want to make it very clear, um, taking, the needed to taking the needed steps to make this country uh, safe from terrorism is very, very important. Uh, but it has to be done without trampling on the rights, uh, our rights, uh, because when our rights get trampled upon, the terrorists win. Um, that's why I'm uh, proud of the fact that Montana has been a leader in the Real ID Rebellion. It is no surprise. It is often said that Montana is so contrary because the state is full of folks who couldn't get along with people back east. In other words, it's in our heritage. Uh, Montana's politics features a mix of prairie populism, uh, of, of tax-hating conservatism, and leave-me-alone uh, liberalism. Uh, libertarianism, I mean. Some folks even managed, as a Freudian slip, some folks even managed uh, to be all of those things at, at one time. So uh, getting a, a unanimous vote in the state legislature is a uh, pretty rare thing. But that is what happened uh, last year when 150 members, 100 in the House and 50 in the Senate, uh, joined the governor uh, opposing Real ID. There were no votes. Uh, there were no votes in favor of Real ID. Let's just put it that way. And when you think about it, it makes sense. Real ID is invasive, expensive, and affront to all of those who cherish uh, privacy rights. You all know the story well. Uh, this law was uh, written with no public input, no hearings, no debate, no amendments. The system of checks and balances that our founding fathers set up uh, were missing in action. Uh, the first Senate hearing held on Real ID finally occurred last year, more than two years after uh, Real ID became law. In the three years since Real ID was enacted, it has had all kinds of unintended consequences and no benefit whatsoever when it comes to making this country more secure. It is incredibly expensive and complicated. It is burdensome to states and individuals alike and is being implemented in a way that makes ordinary folks cringe. The most recent charade only proves the point where states were forced to get around an arbitrary May 11th deadline to comply with Real ID. Many states were deemed to be in compliance with Real ID, even though they said they had no plans to comply. 
but some of the states resisted. Interestingly enough, many of those states uh, have they already took steps to uh, make their driver's license more secure, Montana and South Dakota among them. Still, they were threatened with retaliation for resisting uh, DHS coercion. The federal government set up a system that was designed with one thing in mind, using federal resources to bully states into going along with the program. For example, it took more than a month of legal wrangling with the federal government for the state of Montana to finally be able to send a letter to DHS. The state simply said it was not asking for an extension. DHS responded by saying that it had no choice uh, but to treat the letter like it was a request for an extension. Uh, this, this legal bobbing and weaving did nothing to improve our homeland security, and it will not. By the time Real ID is fully in, uh, implemented, it will be the year 2017. Sixteen years will have passed uh, since that awful day when our nation was attacked on September 11th. That is a long time to wait for action on something that will not deliver a real security benefit. In the meantime, uh, the law is already causing massive headaches for the states. Uh, these troubles are a sign of things to come if we continue down the real ID road. The states have no idea whether to go forward with building databases, redesigning driver's licenses, and trading new DMV workers that, that the real ID requires. If they do, in fact, undertake these costly efforts, they do so with no guarantee that the federal government will compensate them at all. Worse still, more expensive driver's licenses and more time waiting in the DMV lane uh, may be the least of our worries. Creating a national ID, and make no mistake, uh, that is precisely what Real ID will do, will open up countless opportunities for our personal information to be stolen or used in a way that we have not agreed to. Most of the opposition to the cost of Real ID is centered around massive new unfunded mandates that it has placed on the states. Uh, that makes sense when you're talking about sticking individuals and in states to the bill for uh, $10 billion, which has been discussed here today is probably far more than that. But far more is, is at stake other than dollars and cents. And this, I think, is the key to understanding why more and more state legislators are responding to their constituents' call to reject Real ID. The Real ID Act was yet another in a series of sweeping laws and programs that represent an invasion of privacy by the government that far exceeds anything that we've seen in a generation. Since 9-11, there has been a steady erosion of the privacy of ordinary citizens. First came the Patriot Act, which uh, gave the FBI extraordinary powers to snoop on the private lives of all Americans. Then came Real ID, followed by revelations of the President's secret domestic wiretapping program. At their core, these efforts share a common origin, the arrogant and wrong-headed belief that the federal government knows best. Ultimately, the failure of Congress and the administration to address the concerns that many states have or the failure to respond to the common sense objections of civil libertarians result in far more than just philosophical disagreement. In my view, these executive powers do long-term harm to our national security. Just as the warrant just as a warrantless wiretapping issue has, has prevented Congress from enacting permanent legislation that allows the federal government to listen in on communications of interest outside the United States, so too has the Real ID debate distracted us. It has distracted us from the obvious need for states to continue to improve the security of driver's licenses. It has distracted us from the real mission of preventing terrorism on American soil. But the threat of attack is real, and we cannot ignore it. But make no mistake, the longer that Real ID hangs around, the more our homeland security resources it will consume. <clears throat> I live 80 miles from the Canadian border, and I can tell you uh, that we have major holes in our border security efforts on both borders. 
I'd, I'd rather have the federal government spend dollars on closing those gaps than looking over the shoulder of a Montana DMV or uh, creating a national database of American citizens. I know this paints a pretty bleak picture of what's going on, uh, but there is a little bit of good news here. A growing number of folks, liberals, conservatives, and everyone in between are finding their voice against these massive privacy violations. While this administration may turn a deaf ear to the growing chorus of concerns, I think that Congress is increasingly re receptive to our message just in time, too. I have more remarks, but we do have to have some, have some questions. I would just tell you that, in essence, in the end, the, the executive branch has swept a ton of power. Uh, our founding fathers set up three branches of government, and we need to obey those. We need to respect those three branches of government. Our Constitution is important, and we need to live by it. And, and I will just tell you that um, as we move forth uh, with the Real ID program, um, they're going to hear a lot from me, and they're going to hear a lot from folks like Governor Stanford down the line. And I think that, as I said earlier, the big issue here is people's attention has been gotten. And uh, people are starting to realize this isn't healthy. And, um, and I think there are better solutions, better solutions that make this country more secure. With that, um, time is limited, but we'll do some questions. Thank you. Thank you both, Senator Tester and Governor Sanford. I'll take the prerogative of the chair to ask a question that's inspired by what, what both of you said. Um, you both, of course, uh, referred to security and the importance of security because it is, it is paramount. It is, that is a thing we expect the government to do, to deliver on. Uh, Real ID may be the first example of a major uh, post-911 program that is, is really subject to searching inquiry. And I, I wanted to ask uh, you at a, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a certain level, uh, is this the beginning of a much more mature, more reasoned debate about the security measures we have in place? Are we ready as a, as a country uh, to carefully uh, focus on the programs we have, uh, improve and, in, and strengthen the ones that work, and maybe put aside the ones that don't work, the ones that represent overreaction? I'd be happy to hear both of your, your comments on that. Yes. I mean, I hope so. I mean, I, I think that... Uh I think there's a natural tendency for uh, for some folks in government to over overreact by what transpired on September 11th. But I think we have a foundation in this country called the Constitution that we need to take a look at. Uh, and when you start depriving people of civil liberties, that's wrong. And so hopefully, and I will tell you that the states have led the charge on this, and I applaud them. The state legislatures around this country have led the charge, and uh, and I think I think the federal government's starting to pay attention, and I think that's healthy, and I think it is time for. A, a good, healthy debate on what we can do. Let me give you an example. If you want to talk about protecting this country, if you want to talk about making this country more secure, we ought to have some radar on the northern border. If you can fly a Piper Cub, you can get across the Montana border, and, 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 and we're talking about an area where nobody lives, to be honest with you. I mean, literally, there, you have to look for miles to see yard lights. And if you can get in the Piper Club Cub and disable the, the beacon, you can get on a dark night, you can fly across that border and nobody's going to see you. They don't have to have, if they've got a real ID in their pocket, who gives a damn? The fact is, is, the fact is, is they, could, they could cause mischief in this country, and, and we're not putting the resources there we need to. The number of people on the ground is totally inadequate, 1,500 inadequate. So there's things we can do that are no-brainers, and we're spending all our time on this kind of stuff that doesn't make any sense. Um. <laughs> I'll pick up on uh, the senator's comment on on uh, balance of power or on the Constitution. 
The founding fathers' biggest fear uh, in terms of, in the long run, homeland security was uh, curtailment of liberty. Uh, they believed that too much power in any one spot was a dangerous thing, and therefore were very deliberate in indeed setting up the three branches of government, each of which w- was to be a check upon the other. But it was not just the checks one upon the other within the federal system. It was also the, the counterbalancing checks of individual prerogative, state prerogative. And I think that um, tragically, post 9-11, uh, there's been a lot of activity, uh, again, earnest, uh, well-intentioned, uh, but in the long run, I think, destructive, that grew federal power at the expense of uh, state and individual prerogative, much less the balance that the center was getting at, uh, which is what's the executive branch doing uh, versus uh, judicial or legislative branches. And so I'd give you just as as, uh, as a reference point, Patriot Act, a lot of people had complaints about it. You know, Bob Barr, who I was in Congress with, is now at least to some extent traveling the country talking about all that's wrong with the Patriot Act. If you look, I remember calling um, Steve Large and a couple of other buddies uh, after um, that vote on uh, TSA, I said, guys, if there's the, ultimately any uh, gut check vote as a conservative, it's the idea of federalizing 40,000 workers and making them a part of the federal system. And so I'd love to be optimistic. I suspect I'm not based on the history that we've seen out play, play out since 9-11. Now, maybe the pendulum is beginning to swing back the other way. And, and, you know, I think to at least to some degree it is because what got me originally uh, sort of more fired up about this thing was during the National Governors Association meeting. I, I, I speak Southern, which means I slur a lot of words, and I apologize. But um, uh, it was a, a meeting between ACLU and Cato, and I don't care who else was there. And I thought, what a whacked-out group. Um, I mean, what, what is the common theme here? And the common theme was liberty. And a common theme was fear on what was going to happen next based on the way the federal government seems to have been taking a lot of things in its hands post-9-11. Excellent question. We are uh, Senator Tester has obligations, and he's willing to take uh, one question from the audience. So if someone has a particular question for Senator Tester, I'd like to take that. Ma'am, please. Oh, we'll, we'll get a microphone down to here in just one second. Sorry about that. Because we're talking about identification, I'm not going to ask you to identify yourself. You may volunteer that information if you wish. Senator, you had mentioned that, Mon- you had mentioned that um, the state of Montana has made some efforts yeah. to improve security of driver's licenses. Yeah. And I was just wondering why the rest of the country can't do that or try to work to improve um, security of passports, since those are documents we already have. Uh, they, they can. And I think that, uh, that, that uh, I don't think Montana is the only state that's done this either. It's, uh, South Carolina may have too. And, and I think that I think you're dead spot on when you talk about using the mechanisms we have already available. Why are we throwing all these things out the window just uh, because we're going to do business a different way and make us more secure? I don't buy it. I think that I think the point that the governor made, and I don't want to take your talking points, Governor, but the point you made about 50 different databases being more secure than a half a dozen uh, around the, this country, I think is, is, is exactly correct. And if Montana can make a secure driver's license, and I fully believe ours is, and it's not counterfeitable, any state in the union can do it. I want to thank uh, – I do apologize for having to go. Uh, I, I, I could literally stay here all afternoon. I like to talk about this stuff. And, uh, and the fact is, is that uh, – 
the, the fact is, is this is the wrong direction to be headed for this country. And, and that's the bottom line. And with help from, uh, from a broad-based group that is, that's attention has, has, been, uh, has been got on this issue, we can make some changes. But you need to be active. You need to be vocal. You need to be talking to your folks. And, uh, and we, can, we can turn this ship around. Please join me in thanking Senator Tester. Well, Governor Sanford will indulge us with, with some more time. Um, do you want to an- respond to that, that question at all yourself in terms of the, the, the right or wrong of strengthening the driver's license system? I mean, the real simple answer, because I've had a number of conversations with folks within Homeland Security on this front, is cost. I mean, you could do it with a passport tomorrow, but, but then it's costing the federal system. And the neat thing about real ID is you get to jam the states for, and the individuals for the cost. They pick up 98 percent of the tab. And... Uh, so I, I, I think it could clearly be done, but it's not being done, I think, largely because of cost. One of the, one of the points that I think is interesting is that, is that uh, a lot is being said about how states are doing things to comply or that comply with Real ID, therefore they are complying with Real ID, and that entirely disregards the background database systems that are really the more important part. The card is the easy part of an identification system. It's the, it's the part that has the least threats to it, though a national ID card would allow a lot of uh, data collection. The back-end databases, the interconnection of data, uh, is something that, that people uh, forget about when they talk about how there's so much compliance with Real ID going on. I think that's one of the more important points. Um, right up there, yellow shirt. Yeah, um, I, I just have a question. What is the constitutional argument for that the federal government is using to justify this legislation? And um, if there's not a strong one, do you know any any of the states who are – whether any of the states are considering any type of interposition or nullification more formally? Say that last phrase. Interposition or nullification. I'm not a lawyer, so I, uh, uh, that means what? <laughs> <laughs> the states could organize a convention and declare the federal law null and void, similar to what uh, Thomas Jefferson in the state of Kentucky did in the Kentucky Resolution. Huh. Um, the answer is I've not heard conversation on that front. Uh, I'm sure that there are a bunch of us as, as leaders within different states that would use any tool in the toolkit. Um, and if that's a viable one, I suspect we'd look at it. As to the federal government's uh, argument, um, I don't know if fall. You know, I don't know the exact constitutional argument. I just know that they're saying, "Look, our job is is you know from a homeland security standpoint." They're narrowly saying. Our job is, as an administration, to um, implement the laws as dictated by the Congress. And whether you like or dislike the fact that this was basically a rider to a much larger bill uh, is irrelevant to the fact that it was still passed to the United States Congress. And therefore, that ain't our problem, uh, is sort of the, argue, uh, the conversation that I have. What over here? Governor Sanford, I'm with Citizens Against Government Waste, and I want to follow on to what you said about the cost. Has South Carolina done a cost estimate of how much it's going to cost you to implement real ID? And also, do you know of other states that have done cost estimates? Because that would be really great information to get out there of the real 
financial burden. I mean, we've heard 9, 17, 23 right. as an aggregate number, but has South Carolina looked at this and said it's going to cost X million or X billion? Sure. Uh, well, we're a relatively small state, so we don't get billions. Or, I mean, our whole budget is $7 billion. So uh, um, I don't think we get there. Uh, but it's $116 million uh, in, in, in direct cost um, th- that we bear. So it's an unfunded mandate of 116 and if you use the higher number, it's 160 But So somewhere between 116 and 160 Let's just use the number, lower number in 116 What's particularly interesting about this proposal is that it's uh, not only an unfunded mandate, but to some degree it causes us to go negative as a state. Because the money that would come out on the federal side is not new money. It would come out of existing Homeland Security grants. We use the Homeland Security grants that we get right now in, uh, for instance, um, interoperability of radio systems across the state. We don't know if we'll ever get hit by a terrorist, but I can guarantee you one thing we're going to get hit by sooner rather than later is another hurricane. Don't know when it's coming, but I know it's coming. Uh, You can just uh, look at the history of these things. Guaranteed, we will get hit. And so what it means is some of the money we've put in for the, uh, the homeland security threat that we know exists would be taken away, put into one that may or may not come about. So not only do we have an unfunded mandate, $116 million, we basically, in addition to that, so you've got to come up with taxes or fees or cutting other areas of government to deal with that, you also lose some existing money that has, in, in our case, gone to some pretty important stuff. Following on that, we're going to have some debates this summer and fall in the in the appropriations process in the House and Senate, where uh, funding for real ID may be at stake. If something as big as a billion dollars gets broken loose from the federal government, bringing you up to a five percent contribution, uh, perhaps to the overall cost, does that make it all right? Start to work with that, or no? For all the reasons that I outlined just a moment ago, um, we still think that it's it's. Um fundamentally sends us further down that plane of growing the federal government at the expense of the prerogative of individuals or or states. So even if you had it fully funded, we would still have reservations about it. Over here. Note for future Cato events, you sit near the center and the questions get to you quicker. Governor, on a, a related topic, uh, the federal government right now is pushing employment verification using the E-Verify system run by Homeland Security and Social Security. What are your thoughts on the E-Verify system? Should it be mandatory? Do you have certain concerns? Do you find it useful? Um, it's not mandatory uh, currently. We, we don't have a problem with it because it's checking against something that already exists. I mean, Social Security numbers are out there. And it's not a new piece of information. Our real objection with um, real ID is for the first time for seven years, we'd be required to keep people's personal birth certificates or marriage certificates, all kinds of things. We'd electronically scan into the system and keep them. Right now, they show up at the DMV office. They show their, their credentials, uh, if you want to call it that, and then they walk. It's theirs. We don't keep a permanent record on file. So one... It's putting a lot of stuff that's, frankly, fairly personal in nature 
in a data system that's never been there before. And so that's one objection, uh, warehousing. And then our other is, is coordination. I mean, you can go back to the time of Pearl Harbor, and the Navy figured out, you know, I tell you what, it's not such a good idea to put a bunch of ships in the same place. And you look at dispersal of assets, I mean, it is a dictum within the military, whether from an airfield standpoint or from a, from a Navy operations standpoint. Uh, and certainly we still have our big bases. But, you know, spreading out assets is something that the military does very, very well. And they've learned it the hard way, that lesson over time. And so our, our second objection is, again, centralizing this data so that some ha- hacker from some other country could hack into what amounts to a federal system and then pull down information that's particular to South Carolina. Uh, that's not the case with uh, E-Verify. Um, in that it's an existing, like it or not, our social security systems are in the system. And we don't have a problem with pinging against it. You know, it's a 10 second ping, see if it's real or not. So we don't, we're, I know some civil libertarians are, are, are worried about it. I'm not as hung up on that one. Right here. Yes, sir. Hi, I'm Dane von Breikenrockart with the U.S. Bill of Rights Foundation. I, I really would have liked to have asked Senator Testa this question, but you were in Congress, so I think you could probably answer it as well. I've noticed that, for instance, the the uh, Patriot Act and now this and other unpopular pieces of legislation that get passed in the middle of the night with no debate, nobody doing what, what What surprises me is that some of the very senators and representatives who complain about this are the very ones who voted for these things. Mm-hmm. And, and what I'm asking is, what is the responsibility of a representative or a senator when some bill comes out in the middle of the night, you've, you don't have enough chance to read it, there's no debate, no amendments, nothing offered, up or down, pass it. I mean, sh- shouldn't there be some protests by individual members of the Senate and the House to stand up and say, I refuse to participate in this, this you know, there's no debate? And well, what? What, 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 what would you see your obligation as a representative from South Carolina, if a piece of legislation like this came rolling in the door and they were trying to strong-arm you into signing it? I've got a well-chronicled past of all kinds of weird objections to weird things. Um, and and uh, so, I mean, I, I would object, and there are a handful of others that, that would as well. Um, but that is not how a legislative body works at the end of the day. Uh, a legislative body is congenial by its very nature, and uh, I remember when I was up here, there's a standing basketball game over at the house gym at about 4 o'clock. And you'd watch on C-SPAN as two guys were seemingly at each other's throats about 345. Uh, and then uh, they'd be on the same team come 4 o'clock, and they're high-fiving after the one guy made the shot. Uh, so uh, whether it's the relationships that are built in uh, – you know, you just spend all, it's almost like you're on a sports team or something. I mean, you spend all kinds of time waiting around for the game to happen, and you're going to dinner, and you let's go see a movie. We're bored out of our minds. We're not going to vote till 10 o'clock. Uh, uh, so there's a lot of hurry up and wait time. There's a lot of, of get to know each other better at a personal level, and that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. So I would say while it ought to happen, it typically does not based on the very nature of a, a legislative body, which is, a, to a degree, a peer-driven process. You have, fortunately, your Tom Coburn to the world who say, look, uh, uh, I respect you. Uh, I see where you're coming from, but I flat out 1,000% disagree, and here, let me lay it out on the House uh, or the Senate floor. But he's an exception to the rule rather than the rule. So I would not expect outrage to come from the halls of Congress. Outrage will really have to come 
from Main Street, little streets, little towns, countryside. That's where outrage really has to start. Other questions? Let's go right here. I'm Diana Marrero with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned a deadline of May 11th, I believe. What penalties are the states um, going to face if they don't meet the requirements? Well, nobody's going to face any penalties because everybody was sort of approved. And it was, as as the senator suggested, I mean, this sort of bizarre uh, legalistic dance where you'd send a letter that says, for all these different reasons, we disagree with the real idea and are not going to participate in it. And you get a letter back that says, we very much appreciate your willingness to uh, send a letter asking for extension to real ID, and therefore we grant you the extension. Um, I mean, amazing uh, you know, ships passing in the night from the standpoint of conversation. Uh, so nobody's going to get um, uh, imposed with fines. Basically, what they threatened was, um, come the summer, uh, uh, your people wouldn't be able to get on an airplane without um, uh, a pat-down search. Now, never mind the fact that, as the senator correctly pointed out, the implementation doesn't begin until between 2014 and 2017. So you'd have somebody from Connecticut on the line right beside you. They'd go through the line since they had a Connecticut uh, driver's license that in many ways is less secure than a South Carolina driver's license. They'd go into the plane. But if you had the South Carolina driver's license, uh, you're just flat out of luck. You go to the second line. You get the pat-down search. And uh, eventually after you've either missed your flight or had to line up for a three-hour delay ahead of time, uh, you get on the flight. And so people were genuinely very, very worried about it. We had letters from, the, you know, the tourism groups, et cetera, saying, wait a minute, this could really impact tourism. Tourism is a big driver for our state. Um, and so the, the, the threatened penalty was getting hassled at the airports. Um, the threat of not going into a federal building didn't seem as onerous to folks. People weren't as worried about that one. <laughs> let, me, let me ask a question that uh, you're, you're quite entitled to pass on entirely mm-hmm. because it's up to you whether you want to answer reveal any details, but we obviously uh, were, were uh, wondering and speculating about what the thinking was in the Department of Homeland Security as it came down to the last few days before the deadline to apply for an extension. Uh, and, and, and watching DHS's behavior, uh, we really couldn't figure out exactly what, where their mind was at. Do you have any, uh, I know you have a cordial relationship with the, the DHS secretary, but uh, do you have any insight on what the discussions were like uh, as you were making your decision about whether or not to send a letter asking for an extension or to send a letter saying, hey, we're, we're never going to comply and I'm, not just, I'm just yeah. not going to fib and say we want an extension? What's, what was the um, conversation? Well, I wouldn't go into any personal conversations I had with the secretary just out of fairness to him. Um, but what I would say, uh, one could surmise, uh, one can never get into somebody else's brain, but at least from an administration standpoint, there's a real tendency um, in the political process uh, to kick the can. Um, because people in politics are no different than people anywhere in any other chapter of life. Everybody wants to have a reasonably good day. Uh, and the idea of having an entire meltdown on a um, policy or a proposal that you're responsible for is not exactly one's definition of a good day. And um, so there was this uh, strange dance with regard to these letters that went back and forth, not, not from my state, but you read about them in, in all the different states. Um, wherein I think that Homeland Security, and again, I'm surmising, because uh, I, I don't want to go into personal conversations, but surmising that 
they wanted to get it done, and then it, frankly, somebody else's problem. Uh, you know, th- th- this administration doesn't have the, all that many days left in it. And um, the scary part, and th- th- this is why we thought it was important to, to make the stand that we did, and I, I think some other states thought it important to make the stands that they did, was that if nobody objected at this point, nobody drew a line in the sand, what it means is the next administration comes in, the next group of bureaucrats are in place, and they say, rightfully, look, we had nothing to do with creating. It was created by the last administration, but we got to implement the law. And and so they you know, go about implementing something because they can legitimately say we weren't part of the problem. We're just implementing the law. And the group that was on the outgoing ticket, you know, hands it off. And so I think a lot of things get passed or move forward in the political process. And the time that is most vulnerable to moving forward bad ideas is here at the the baton pass. And we're about at the baton pass stage. Um, So that's a roundabout way of answering your question without going into personal conversations with, with Homeland Security. Thank you. Let's do one more question before we wrap it up. Right here. I have I have nothing to hide and therefore nothing to fear, Jim. So my, please my identify name, yourself. My, <laughs> my name is Bill Scanlon with the Identity Project, and I've spent five years of my life uh, not in a cushy corporate job where I'd rather be, and instead I've had to deal with these issues. Um, a couple of quick points. First of all, loved your letter, loved your show. Uh, truly. Sumpnerian in its uh, in its breath of of launching rockets against the federal. Hey, what is that again? I'm not a lawyer. What's that word mean? I, I, <laughs> it just reminded me of uh, Fort Sumpner. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> shot off there. That, that movie didn't end well. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but two quick points. You've, you've talked about kicking the can. People think the can is kicked to 2015, 2017. Um, you and I both know that the can is really only kicked until December of next year. Correct. Um, uh, Second quick point is that uh, oh, the people talk about how much this is going to cost, uh, imp- the implementation of Real ID. I think that we forget how much money there is to be made out of this. And I have been astonished at, 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 at the degree to which uh, our constitutional rights have, have been outsourced. I'd be very interested in hearing from you uh, about AMVA and a lot of these private groups and private businesses that stand to make a lot of money off of Real ID by selling the state's stuff Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and what kind of pressure and lobbying not only uh, you and your government, uh, your state government has come under, but but what you're seeing happening within Washington and how can we possibly counter the millions of dollars of lobbying uh, money uh, that can be thrown at uh, the potential of making billions of dollars off of uh, outsourcing our constitutional rights? Thank you. Very interesting question. Thank you, Bill. I, you know, I've not really followed the commercial application component of this, and there certainly is one. Um, uh, ours has been either at the nuts and bolts of implementation at a DMV counter uh, or at the philosophic. Um, but we've, we've – I, I need to learn more about that component. I, I really haven't. Um, I would say this, though, and I just use um, – uh, last night I watched some of the Obama returns from North Carolina. And um, what was interesting in watching the television, I made my kids watch the speech. Uh, whether you like or dislike uh, Obama, and I, I'm not a fan, um, I, I don't like his policies, but I genuinely admire the way that, that uh, you know, if you think about going against the apparatus of a presidential machine and network, 
a former president, uh, all those different nuts and bolts that go with, uh, in essence, past incumbency. It's a pretty amazing story, the way that they've generated huge sums of money over the Internet, and then subsequently now that's grown to corporate America since he's gotten some traction. But but what what that Obama story says to me, and maybe this is a weird analogy, but uh, is – at the end of the day, as real as those different corporate interests can be, because if you were a betting man at the beginning of the Democratic primary process, you would have overwhelmingly said, Hillary's got it locked, end of story, uh, is that uh, a lot of little folks made their voices heard, gave him the jet fuel to start up a, an insurgent campaign that is probably going to put him as the Democratic nominee which says to me, yeah, they're different corporate interests. They're going to push for certain things having something to do with real ID. But if enough of us at an individual level make our voice heard, talk to three friends, talk to two friends, talk to five friends, a remarkable difference can be made. Thank you all. Appreciate it. Thank you. Folks, I think, I think Governor Sanford has done his work, and he's signaled to us a couple times that we need to do our work. And the people who watch this video, the people who, who uh, are, are watching this debate, need to do their work uh, to educate others about it, to educate other uh, local, state, and federal leaders about it. Let me, let me thank again Governor Sanford and Senator Tester for coming and sharing their views. I invite you to join all of us upstairs in the Winter Garden for some sandwiches. Appreciate it. Thanks again.